0: Podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: I used to have so many men.
5: From UFOs to psychic powers and government conspiracies, history is riddled with unexplained events. You can turn back now, or learn the stuff they don't want you to know. A production of iHeartRadio.
3: Hello, welcome back to the show.
5: My name is Matt. My name is Noel. They call me Ben. We're joined as always with our super producer, Alexis, codenamed doc holiday Jackson. Most importantly, you are you. You are here. And that makes this stuff they don't want you to know. It's time yet again when we hear from our favorite part of the show, you specifically, you and your fellow listeners. Uh, we've got, we've got quite a ride here. We've been receiving, um, some. Incredible correspondence, both at our phone number, one 833 std Some fantastic emails to conspiracy at iheartradio.com. And um, we've had a lot of people reaching out to us to follow up on some specific episodes in some, some really interesting ways, including um, uh, some stories about Canada that we do want to warn you in advance may not be suitable for all our audience members, including a, a great story about uh, Cary Grant, and found someone inspiring, and a story from Banks. Uh, banks, you called us uh, in response to the military entertainment complex, and I think that was, for our crew recording that, that episode was um, pretty illuminating, because I think we all kind of knew what was going on, but I don't, were you guys aware of the extent of it before we dove into it?
3: Not to the Detail, right? Like you said, the the wider picture, I think, is assumed a lot, but you that isn't backed up with facts and and the minutia very often.
5: And we got a lot of people who wrote in regarding specifically our episode on the military entertainment complex, because it's it's just as active as the military industrial complex, but it's not acknowledged near as openly and uh the you know the weirdest thing that I, I thought would be a good a good level setter here is i looked at the budget of the us military the official figure which is probably smaller than the actual money spent it's over nine hundred and eighty billion dollars which means that if we if the military was a country its budget would be higher that it would have the, let me see, let me think. It would have the 17th highest GDP in the world, just above Turkey and just a little bit under Indonesia. So it's, it's very much a country of its own and it has the powers that countries have. So banks, you opened a door for us when you called in and told us this.
1: Hey, guys. My name is Banks. I am ex-military, and I was calling about the episode on the military entertainment uh, complex. While I enjoyed the the episode, you guys missed out on one critical aspect of it, and that is the military integration with the uh, professional sports and how it trickled down to college and high school and so forth. I thought that was a good opportunity to um, explain how the military got involved with sports in the first place. Uh, thank you, and I
6: enjoy listening to you guys.
5: Banks, uh, thank you so much for calling in. Uh, several people had raised the the same point. And, uh, you know, originally when we were diving into the story of the military entertainment complex, we knew that this kind of felt like a multi-part episode and we stayed away from the world of sports but you are absolutely right this does deserve an explanation because it's like you know how if you travel anywhere else in the world outside of the U.S. you'll notice that there aren't pharmaceutical commercials on television that's because they're illegal in much of the rest of the world and it's weird that we consider it normal it's also kind of weird that we consider it normal to have the military involved so heavily in the world of professional sports. Uh, the Pentagon has, between 2012 and 2015, spent tens of millions of dollars, uh, 53 million dollars, just, just in that um, short span of years, to pay these different uh, these different teams and these these different owners and these different associations to present the military in a patriotic light that helps for domestic support and, of course, helps for recruitment. I think one of the biggest surprises for a lot of people is, you know, if you're ever at a soccer game or, you know, football to the rest of the world or, you know, a baseball game, whatever, it's not surprising to see uh, someone be honored for their military service, right? Like there will be a pause, maybe it's like a the beginning of the game or something. They say we're going to pause to acknowledge our veterans in the crowd or this this specific person is returning from this this conflict zone and it seems very, you know, sincere and it seems very patriotic. Those groups are being paid to do this. This is a paid ad. That's what's happening. Did you guys know that? Because I, I was not aware for a long time. I had no idea.
4: I didn't understand. I didn't even realize that there was a connection between you know the military and sports. It makes perfect sense, but it, it just uh, it never occurred to me.
3: Yeah, it's bad casting for me at least because it's been a long time since I've seen any professional sporting match. Uh, I haven't seen a. I haven't seen a Super Bowl. And I don't even
4: know how many years. I think I, I watch it usually a little bit before and after the halftime show because the halftime shows are kind of fun. But, yeah, yeah, same. I watched the, the one that Atlanta was so brutally slaughtered in a handful of years ago. And they they did so well in the first half. But uh, then they just got destroyed. But I did watch that entire game in an, a very busy bar with a lot of fans that were sorely disappointed.
5: I dig the energy. But, um, man, yeah the Falcons, still too soon for me to talk about it. (laughs) Right. Um, Yeah, so whether or not you are a fan of sports, right, Um, and a lot of people, of course, haven't been able to see the games they wish they could have seen uh, due to the pandemic. Whether or not you're a fan, though, uh, what you realize when you ask yourself how does the military interact with the world of sports is that very quickly the answer becomes um, complicated. Senators John McCain and Jeff Flake were able to shed some light on this story uh, back in 2015 when they introduced this concept. And and for some people this is perfectly fine. It doesn't matter that it's a paid ad that's purporting to be a sincere display of patriotism, but for other people that deceptiveness is almost offensive at times. And that's that's really what the relationship between the military entertainment complex and professional sports could best be termed as, unfortunately, paid patriotism. It's not an anomalous pattern, right? Pepsi will pay millions of dollars to have an ad in the Super Bowl. So the question is, why should the rules be different for Uncle Sam? There's an argument there that I think is is similar to our argument about the... um, the cons of the military entertainment complex when it's applied to children, right? Like you are, you're a kid who loves basketball, right? And watching basketball games, and you dream of being the next LeBron or the next uh, Michael Jordan. And like many kids who try to go into a career in basketball, uh, the, the rate of attrition is so high that you don't, you don't unfortunately get to be that basketball superstar, but you have grown up seeing the military featured as one of the best jobs in the planet. Are you therefore more likely, as a consequence of that long-term advertising, uh, are you therefore more likely to join the military? I think it's a valid question to ask. If you study this, what you'll notice, is for folks who were around before 2001, this relationship increased by an order of magnitude after the events of September 11th. And now it's kind of weird not to see these sorts of displays uh, if you go to a particular sports game. And sports games, of course, in the U.S. are already, you know, they're very patriotic. You sing the national anthem. Even, Even though objectively, I'll say it, the national anthem is not that great of a song.
4: It's not that great of a song. No, it definitely isn't. It's got some mixed uh, messages in there, but I mean, it's true. Like football, I think, well, baseball uh, in particular, those two really do feel like these very nationalistic sports, you know, they are these kind of, they're associated with America and our culture. Um, And, you know, soccer is obviously making a big uh, uh, splash here now, but that's still, I think, largely thought of as like more of a European or a sport, you know, from somewhere else.
5: Mm-hmm. So this can be sticky, right? Because we're talking about very deep emotional ties that a lot of people have. You know, it's your favorite game in the world. It's uh you may have served in the military or know someone who has. So it may be surprising for a lot of us today to realize some of the strongest objectors to this relationship are uh like banks, veterans themselves. Uh there, there's a great piece on um WBR about veterans speaking out against what they see as the military, the militarization of sports. And I'd like to read a quote from a guy named Bill Astor. He's a retired Air Force lieutenant colonel, and he has written about this multiple times. It really bothers him. He's describing how he saw these uh, jets, right, that, that flew over in, a, in an aerial parade. Uh, to like during a during a stadium game. And here's what he said. He said, I think at first there's a sort of thrilling feeling. I'm like all the other fans. A big plane goes overhead. Wow, that's kind of awe-inspiring. But at the same time, to me, he says, it's not something that I see should be flying over a sports stadium before a baseball game or a football game. You know, these are weapons of death. They may be required, but they certainly shouldn't be celebrated and applaud it what do you guys think about that
4: yeah it's like the idea of like maybe i don't think people make this connection often enough perhaps but it's the idea of like using tanks in a parade you know it's a show of military might it's a flex it's like look at us and fear us kind of even in a weird way to your own people (laughs) i don't know there's a
3: there's so much psychology going on there because it, it isn't just a flex outwardly, it's a flex inwardly, right? It's to mm-hmm. make the viewer feel as though there's power, because it, mm-hmm. it is about the power of the individual somehow, like if that's, that's the rhetoric, you know, of the army or something, and then you're talking about adding tanks to the situation, these weapons of destruction and death, Um, you're showing like what power an individual can
4: wield, and then what those individuals together can do that's a really good point matt there's a (laughs) lot of symbolism in there where it is a show of force both internally and externally i Mm -hmm. think
3: but but you're combining it with especially if you're doing american football you know basketball uh trying to think even hockey any any of these sports that are, are popular in the u.s you're even sometimes baseball you're talking about physic like physical yes. feats of strength mm-hmm. right that are
4: one of the main things that lead a team to well, victory and an incredibly militarized formation for example in like football where it's all about like the front lines and advancing it really is like the closest thing to playing war that you could imagine kind of like on that grid
5: yeah i wrote i wrote a paper about that a number of years ago which was a follow up to the thing I re- Wrote asking whether war is an economic necessity. It's to what degree do sports replace the practice of war, of tribalistic war in particular? Uh, but think about but, this. So, yeah,
3: I would just say, Ben, and certainly in this case, it's using, it's it's doing what you're saying, like replacing it, but then also using it to strengthen the other one psychologically. I, th- I think.
5: Yeah, absolutely, and you know, I, I'm I'm going to be honest, folks. The, there are some displays like this that I absolutely. Love like when the Blue Angels uh, took the training exercise they already had scheduled to fly over Atlanta, Georgia. Yeah, I went to the local park. I wanted totally. to see what the business was. You know what I mean? In a very real way, yeah. I own part of those. I sure yeah. as sure as hell paid for them. You know, and just
4: just dusting us with those chemtrails. You know, <laughs> never mind. I'm joking. But yeah, <laughs> no, it's it's a beautiful thing to behold for sure. Until you dig down into it, and I don't think. I think we've seen it so often that we're almost numb to the point that Matt's making about how it is this kind of show of force. Uh, we see it as kind of, oh, it's just a neat trick. It's like, look at him do the loop-de-loop or like uh, whatever. It doesn't really feel like that um, that kind of iron-fisted flex that we're talking about.
5: Normalized, just like pharmaceutical commercials. Uh, and, of course, Flake and McCain are two more conservative senators. Uh, so their big objection to paid patriotism was the use of tax dollars, and they felt like these contracts were somewhat deceptive to people. But you are right, banks. It is not just a big business, but it's a growing business. And for anyone who would like to learn more about this, you can read the 2015 report by McCain and Flake uh, called Tackling Paid Patriotism. It's free to read online and i'm very interested to hear in to hear everybody's remarks regarding the power of symbolism at play here which is very real and profound uh, and what if any effect this may have is this like a is this a domestic hearts and minds operation I would argue, yes. But thank you to banks. Thank you to everybody who wrote in to us on this topic. We want to hear your stories about the military and sports, uh, and we'll tell you how to reach us again at the end of today's show. But now let's pause for a word from our sponsor, who may be the Atlanta Falcons. We don't know. And we'll be back with more Listener Mail.
7: I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years
2: And we're back,
3: and now we are turning away from sports and the Blue Angels to an email written by, I think it's Tim. It's T-Y-M. I'm mm-hmm. going to say
4: Tim. It's a cool <laughs> spelling of Tim. I like it. Could I, be I, time. I, yeah. If it was time, would it probably be T-I-M-E? I don't know. That'd be weird. I'd love to meet a person named Time, spelled like the word time, the concept of time.
5: Uh, It's vagabond, Tim, as well. It is right?
3: vagabond, Tim. Vagabond. I love that word. But it could be Vagabond time.
5: So it could like be that, Vagabond time. Ooh.
4: <laughs>
3: That's kind of fun. Is that
4: like Eastern? Uh, never
5: mind. <laughs> I'm on Vagabond time. Right, my clock, Or It's
3: Vagabond my, time.
5: <laughs> I'm thinking like Vagabond time. If your clock is set to that, does that mean it doesn't work in a house? Anyway, whatever. Moving on. Oh, nice. No, they're not all going to be worth it. We're working live. Matt, That's what's all going on with Tim? So,
3: all right. Yes. So, what's going on is uh, Vagamon Tim sent us an email and it goes like this. It's extended, and there's a lot of information in here. There are a couple of links that we may reference as we're going through this, but for the most part, I'm just, I want to read from this uh, message because it is fantastic. So, thank you. Oh, and before we get into the email, just a quick disclaimer here. Ben said there was going to be something in this episode that may not be suitable for everyone. Well, this is probably that section. This is the contents of this email are dealing with quite a bit of death. So that's what we'll be talking about for the next few minutes. Uh, If you don't want to do that, maybe fast forward about 15 minutes from now, maybe 20. It'll hopefully be 15. Are you ready? Here we go. Tim says, Hi, Ben, Matt and Noel and the gang. This is Vagabond Tim in Vancouver, Canada. I wanted to fill you in on a few things that I've observed over the past few years and tie together some threads that you've touched on. I'm from Eastern Canada and been in British Columbia for the past three years. I can't help but notice my dogs barking. Well, those are your dogs, Matt. I can't help but notice there's something strange in the air here. For such a prosperous and beautiful place, there's an unusual amount of drugs, gangs, dogs, addictions, random violence, mental health issues, and generally crazy people. I like to call it the Florida of Canada. Uh, I put dogs in there. He didn't. There's many things I would like to discuss with you. But for today, I want to highlight a series of unexplained occurrences. Six men have disappeared in British Columbia's southern interior between 2017 and 2019. So let's list some of these off. In October of 2017, there was a man named Luke Neville. His burned out van was discovered on a Forest Service road. A cadaver dog search of the area turned up nothing. And police say they consider this disappearance suspicious, as you do when there's a burned out vehicle.
4: Then February of 2018, we've got Ryan Stuka. Hope I'm doing that right. Um, he was 20 years old and disappeared after leaving a house party at the Sun Peaks Ski Resort, um, which is near Kamloops. The uh, illustrious Royal Canadian Mounted Police and other volunteers searched for him, did a massive search party um, through the village and all of the surrounding trails and forests. But they didn't find anything um, as to his whereabouts.
5: Fast forward a little less than a year, January 2019, Ben Tyner, a working cowboy, vanishes from the Merritt area after riding into the hills to look for cattle. His abandoned horse was found, fully saddled, on a Forest Service road northwest of the city two days later. An extensive search by volunteers and police on foot, horseback, in helicopters, and on snowmobiles found no trace. The pattern continues. My goodness.
3: Okay. Then in July of 2019, not, you know, this is a little, you know, seven months, six, seven months afterwards, a man named Ryan, who uh, was 38, Ryan P., and a man named Ben Skurr, who was 37, they had a Jeep Cherokee, which again was found abandoned, this time not necessarily burned out, Uh, but it was in a wooded area between a couple of places, the Kamloops place in Merritt. A month later, their bodies were found in a rural area north of Spence's Bridge, which is 80 kilometers away from where their vehicle was. Again, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police said there was, quote, criminal behavior associated with the case, but there was really no other details that were there to be shared, and there was no cause of death that's
4: been made public, at least. Uh, then we've got November of 2019, a 26-year-old by the name of Marshall uh, Iwasa. Um, his GMC pickup truck was found torched as well by hikers on a uh, one of these very remote Forest Service roads, and that's near Darcy, British Columbia. Um, He was last seen visiting a storage locker in Lethbridge, which is his hometown, just a week earlier. And the investigation apparently continues uh, in Lethbridge by the Lethbridge police. uh, But they say that they've not found any evidence thus far of foul play.
3: So Tim goes on to say five incidents, six individuals, two bodies, two burned out vehicles, four, maybe six vanished with no trace, all unsolved and police are denying any links between any of these instances of disappearances and deaths. Uh, I don't know. It it seems a little weird. Tim says apparently the the law enforcement there is keeping a tight lid on a lot of the details, probably because there are active investigations associated with each one of these instances. Uh, Tim says he would love to see a follow-up on this and get some broader attention to it. And he does note that there's been some reporting by the CBC on this and he's he's correct there's a story from CBC called six men missing in the same region of British Columbia's southern interior but no links in cases police say and you can read that right now if you go if you want to go into the full details at this moment you can see at least on that article that there are there's all kinds of postage being being put out for the missing people there are you know large like road signs, essentially, that are raising awareness of some of the missing persons there. Mm-hmm. There's certainly interest by the families and probably many people who live in that immediate area.
5: Yeah, you know, I I paid great attention to this letter as well, which we, we got uh, just before we came in to record earlier today. And Vagabond Tim, one thing that I, I thought was very well written here is that you're you're acknowledging you're acknowledging the facts, and you go on later to say that you caught a really strange vibe in this area when you were living around places. And uh, Tim, you told us that you had been moved to rights when you were just walking earlier outside a normal everyday jaunt, and then you saw yet another missing persons poster. Skeptics are going to say that hey, you guys are. Maybe you and the reporters are unintentionally cherry picking, right going to these specific cases remain unexplained officially, but uh we we just did the cursory look at the population of British Columbia's interior. It's not a huge population like you would see in a metropolis. It's around nine hundred sixty one thousand one hundred and fifty five people. So for this many disappearances to occur, they're all in the same rough geographical region, um, for them to happen in relatively quick secession like this with a population this small, that is anomalous, and it bears scrutiny, I would argue.
3: Yeah, I I think so, too. The missing person poster that Vagabond Tim encountered was Trina Hunt, and you can read stories about her that, are being published as recently as March 17th of this year Um, where you can read on Tri-City News, a couple other places specifically about what happened or what seems to have happened because there's not much known about what happened to Trina, but she was last seen on January 18th in Heritage Mountain. That's where she lives. I don't know. It's It's a disturbing case. Anytime someone goes missing, it's disturbing in the case of this area that you've, you know, pointed out, like you said, Ben, these cases that don't seem to be connected, but there are similarities. Um, it's, it's weird and it's troubling. And I think it's definitely worth our time later. And we didn't even mention, <laughs> Fagmon Tim sent us all kinds of information, including stuff on the Highway of Tears, including uh, a whole other story about these two teenagers. This crazy story about two teenagers that went on a homicide spree right. while driving across Canada intense stuff. And I I think maybe, Vagabond Tim, what you were doing is maybe connecting those teens or maybe something similar to the other disappearances and homicides. I'm not sure. It seems like maybe that's where we're going with this. But um you are definitely right that there's weird stuff going on. And we we very, very much appreciate you
5: reaching out. Agreed. Yeah, agreed. Uh Thanks to you, Vagabond Tim, and thanks to All the many listeners are northern neighbors who have written to us about this. It is surprising that this is not making more news in the U.S. You know what I mean? Mm
3: -hmm. I'm going to end with what Tim said. He says, an old criminology professor once told me that crime increases as you go west and north in Canada. Now I'm starting to see it and to put the pieces together. I've lived all over this country, including East and West coasts, Ontario, and the Northern Territories, if you need any info. And he signed it, Vagabond Tim. Or time. I think or time.
5: Tim. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll take some uh, Tim to pause for a word from our sponsors. Uh, we'll be back with one more story from you.
7: I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States.
4: We're back, Um, and this um, story came to us through a response to the episode we did with Kesha um, talking about psychedelics and using them to, you know, cure what ails you, psychologically, really, and how that's really kind of coming around again as a uh, viable form of treatment for things like PTSD and addiction and um, depression. And we talked a lot about that, and there were a lot of things that we covered and there were a lot of things that we didn't cover. And, and listener, the Brock Ness Monster, uh, left us a voicemail pointing out one of those stories that we missed that is an absolute gem.
6: Hello, uh, this is Brock Ness Monster from uh, Dayton, Ohio, and uh, listening to your podcast now about psychedelics, and uh, you've kind of done a few shows about this. And I got to tell you, I'm, I'm a little surprised that you guys haven't looked at Kerry Grant's LSD treatments from, like, the 50s and early 60s, I think he was treated for, I don't think it was alcoholism, I think he had, like, a really messed up relationship with his father. He tripped, like, 5,000 times, uh, all with, like, a aid of a, I don't know if it's a psychiatrist or what, but uh, apparently it really helped him uh, get to grips with the relationship with his father and Helped them be a healthier, healthier, happier human being. They used to do a lot of treatments, uh, treat alcoholism with LSD in the 50s. It's very effective. The war on drugs kind of f- everything up. So anyway, um, take
4: care. Thank you uh, to the Brockness Monster. It's a great nickname to give yourself. Um, and I think we can call you that without blowing up your spot. Um, great but name, yeah, it's, great it's, story. It's a great story. And it's one that I had no idea about. And you think of Cary Grant. As this classic old Hollywood actor and also kind of like, a he's an amazing actor, but you kind of think of him as part of the old guard, not, you know, the new, like, more like uh Easy Rider, Jack Nicholson's and, you know, Kurt Russell's of the world and all that. I just think of him as being this very, you know, he's more of a martini and a cigarette guy than a joint and a tab of acid guy. But it turns out, you know, he was those things and there was a period um, like Brockness Monster said in the 50s, uh, late 50s and early 60s When the discovery of LSD, not to mention things like MKUltra and all of that, uh, but it was kind of a legit, thought of as a legitimate treatment. The MKUltra stuff is terrible and terrifying. And you should listen to Operation Midnight Climax and many old episodes of stuff I don't want you to know to hear more about that. But there was sort of like a, a silver lining to all of that horror in that it was being used to treat people like Cary Grant. Cary Grant was, in fact, an alcoholic and he had a very depressing childhood. I didn't realize this. He's English. Uh, maybe that's really obvious to like old movie buffs, but I just, I just didn't know that. Cause you think of him, he's got this, this weird accent. It's like, it's like almost like a mid Atlantic thing, but he apparently put that on and kind of created this persona. His real name growing up, is about as British as they come. Sounds like a character out of a Charles Dickens novel, Archibald Leach, kind of a villain kind of name out of a Charles Dickens novel. But he he was like recruited in as a circus performer when he was a kid and his mom like took off and he thought that she was dead, but found out later in life that she wasn't and, and that she'd actually been committed to a sanitarium by his uh, horrible father. And anyway, just very dark upbringing. But then he, you know, moved to America and, and kind of rebranded himself as Cary Grant and changed the way he talked um, and was a very famous actor, you know, before this period when he was Taking LSD, um, but between the years of 1958 and 1961, he, under the supervision of a psychiatrist, uh, took LSD every week, and it wasn't quite five thousand times that he tripped, um, but it was at the very least a hundred. And he uh, this was before there was this stigma on LSD as being this kind of bellwether of like counterculture and stuff. And, you know, they a the line in the sand between like the beatniks and the hippies and kind of like the old guard. Like I was saying, I always associated Cary Grant with. But at the time, he just would not stop talking about it. He apparently, you know, um, found some kind of amazing enlightenment and had been very insecure leading up to that and kind of not knowing who he was, felt like he had these two identities, you know, Archie Archibald or Archie Leach and Cary Grant. And he spoke about this openly. He even like, he also was very, um, kind of, uh, what's they're looking for reclusive before this to this period where he wouldn't really do interviews and didn't appear in public much. And then all of a sudden during this period, he had this burst of like, I got to tell the world and he reached out to uh, good housekeeping magazine, which was apparently the news breaking publication of choice at the time and told them all about how LSD changed his life and, you know, helped him kick the booze and all of that. And just kind of made him in general, a happier person. Um, and it's just fascinating uh, to, to to hear this from him, where he was so outspoken about it. Um, he There's a film about it called Becoming Cary Grant, directed by Mark Kaidel, I believe is how you pronounce it. And he says in this Guardian article, he claimed he was saved by LSD. You have to remember that Cary was a private man. He rarely gave interviews. And yet, after taking acid, he personally contacted Good Housekeeping magazine and said, I want to tell the world about this. It has changed my life. Everyone's got to take it. So... um. Yeah, he be nice. You know, there there are other famous people of the time that took it, uh, directors like uh, Sidney Lumet is one that's referenced in this Guardian article, and and others that we know about now. But they weren't out there like you know evangelizing for this stuff like Cary Grant was. Um, and then inevitably, that counterculture kind of demonization period kicked in. LSD was uh, made illegal, and um, he kind of backed away from the limelight in terms of like you know his uh, position on it being this amazing wonder drug, but presumably he still continued to take it uh, some. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I think this is a really cool little kind of forgotten part of uh, old Hollywood history. And it does dovetails perfectly into this, you know, new conversation about let's get back to using this stuff to treat people with these uh, conditions.
3: Mm, it, it really does. And there's another quote that's right above the the quote that you read there. Norman. Oh, I know the
4: one that <laughs> <laughs> I love it very much.
3: Oh, uh, it's silly. I don't, we don't need No, He says, You got,
4: are you, you going to make me I'll read do it? it?
3: All right. Oh, uh, well, yeah. Why don't you do it? It's, it's, it, I believe this is in Carrie's words. No, it's a uh, quote from one yeah, of these, qu-
4: uh, one of these articles, one of these interviews he gave.
3: It is. I know it's silly, but it is, um, it's just it's it's interesting.
4: Well, he he just says, "quote in one LSD dream," which seems like kind of a you know old old school way of referring to it. I imagined myself as a giant penis. I wish I could do caricature. I imagined myself as a giant penis. Launching off from Earth like a spaceship. I'm not doing it right. Uh, that's more of a, I don't know what that is. Well, maybe let me know. Rate me on my carry Grant. But yeah, and it's, it's crazy. At the time, like in the UK, there was this place called Powick Hospital that funded an LSD clinic. Um, and that was like a, a viable form of treatment in, in the UK in particular. And the psychiatrist um, in, in question that, that treated Grant was Dr. Mortimer Hartman, Um, and that was at the Psychiatric Institute of Beverly Hills.
5: And we know that when Grant died in 1986, he donated quite a bit of money uh, to Hartman, but Mm -hmm. he was not in any way unique other than the fact that he was a world-famous actor, and so maybe had a little more agency of privilege to speak at length about these things. Um, I believe it was from that same article Uh, which I I had also read, which uh, fantastic work by Jan Brooks, I hope I'm pronouncing your name right, Mr. Brooks, uh, said that there were over 40,000 people who had received this treatment uh, between just a period of like 15 years before the mid-60s. Mid-60s is when people started saying, hey, this is hippy-dippy stuff. Uh, History does, you know, rhyme more often than it repeats, so I predict that we're going to see more increasingly open conversations about this from people who feel like they have benefited from uh, psychedelic treatment, which has also gone a long way, but as, as I said in the many other episodes when we examine this stuff, the stigmatization of these substances in a very real way crippled the progress of research. You know what I mean? It's totally. stymied it. We could have been so much further ahead. I think this is a great story, Brock, and thanks for bringing it to our attention.
4: I, I really do too, and I want to see the documentary very much Becoming Cary Grant from 2017, um, directed by Mark Kaidel. Um, and yeah, I, I have not seen, I actually hadn't heard of it until I read this article and that guardian piece that we're talking about, which is, I think the best one on this that we found is called Cary Grant, how a hundred acid trips in Tinseltown changed my life.
3: It's really interesting. So I never would have, I never would have come upon this and uh, never would have known unless, mm-hmm. uh, you pointed us to it. So thanks.
5: Yeah. So thanks so much, Brock. And thanks so much, uh, banks, and everybody else who wrote in about the military entertainment complex and sports. We're going to get some stories about that one.
3: That's right, and giant thanks to Vagabond Tim Time. Two great <laughs> nicknames today. So, hey, if you want to be like all of these fantastic people, you can write to us, you can call us, you can find us on social. There's so many ways. Let's start with social. You can reach us at Twitter and Facebook where we are conspiracy stuff on Instagram we are conspiracy stuff show. If you want to check out our Facebook page where you can hang out with all the other conspiracy realists who've already joined up, have conversations, post dank memes, do whatever you want to do, it's your space as long as the mods say it's okay. Uh check it out. We are here's where it gets crazy on the Facebook page. If you don't want to do that stuff, you can find us via
5: your telephone's phone function. What is that like an app or something? That's right. Uh, yeah, the oldest function on the phone. Right, it's still That's kicking. It. <laughs> uh, yeah, we uh, we would love to hear from you. Dial us up one eight three three S T D W Y T K. Three minutes. Those minutes are yours. You'll hear a voicemail. You'll hear a a weird beep tone, and then uh, you know, off to the races. Uh, Give yourself a kick-ass nickname. We love them. Uh, Let us know if we can use your name and voice on air. Tell us what's on your mind, whether it's reacting to stuff we discussed today or even more importantly, personally, my opinion, uh, proposing new topics that you think your fellow listeners would enjoy. If your story is more than three minutes, uh, then please don't edit yourself. Please don't censor yourself. That goes against the mission of this show. Instead, write to us. Tell us the whole thing. Give us the whole nine, um, like Vagabond Tim did or Vagabond Time, uh, because we take the time to read every one. So you might be saying, well, how the heck do I get this letter to you? It's very simple. Using another piece of technology that is also, like the phone, kind of old now, you can send us a good old-fashioned email where we are. Conspiracy
4: at iHeartRadio.com.
3: Stuff They Don't Want You to Know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
0: MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old-school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official Challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing
3: the right travel partner. Jean! Jean Fodor. Jean what's good